Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 46. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com, and our very special guest is Chris Bailey, the founder of Financial Orbit. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Hi there. Chris, tell us a bit about Financial Orbit and a bit about yourself, please. Well, I guess I had a very, very conventional background, 15-odd um, years as, a, as an analyst and an institutional fund manager. And then around about five and a half years ago, I surprised everybody by quitting. And with, with absolutely no plan, I have to say, it was we can get into the reasons why I, I quit the institutional investment game uh, perhaps later. But I, I ended up setting up my own business called Financial Orbit. And basically what I do is I, I only work with people that I like. That's the number one rule. And the number two thing is I help them, I consult with them about anything across the investment spectrum, right the way from kind of macro asset allocation type things, right the way through to individual securities. So, yeah, it's basically my my consultancy brand, effectively. Chris, are your clients individuals or corporations? It's much easier to do with corporations because with individuals you have, and it's a terrible thing to say, you have a lot of regulatory potential hassles, and I'm always very cognizant and aware of that. So typically it tends to be institutions, a, a nice wide range actually, everything from kind of investment banky types right the way down to sort of wealth managers um, and sort of IFA uh, people. So it's a really nice spread. And uh, what's fun is that um, it's, it's all people that I really like working with, which I think is really important. So uh, it's a good spread and, and it keeps me young. So your clients are your friends kind of thing. Is that, is that how? Well, it, 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 that's how it started. I mean, uh, to put a bit more meat on the bone, I mean, um, I, I really enjoyed my time as an institutional fund manager. I love the world of investments. It is the most fascinating, intellectually demanding, psychologically sort of appealing kind of area out there. However, it got to the point uh, five and a half years ago where actually I'd fallen out of love with it. And it was nothing to do with investments. And it was all to do with omnipresent meetings, regulation, committees. It was taking me away from the job that I loved. And um, it was, but my performance, my institutional performance was good, but I could just see that the next iteration was ever more stuff, meetings, committees, and even less investment things, which didn't appeal to me. So I I, I quit, uh, which, which surprised the, the sort of the senior management of the company that I was working for at the time. But I said to them, look, I just need to go down a different path. And th- there really was no plan other than obviously to, to manage my own money, clearly. that you know the, the good thing about being moving away from being an institutional fund manager is that you get a bit more flexibility to manage your own money, which is you know very nice. Um, so I I started doing that. And as is my sort of want, I I kind of learn and my thinking kind of improves if I write stuff down. Um, that's just my way of doing things. So as always, as I was during my institutional investment days, I started to write things down, just observations and insights and things I picked up. Um, and then a couple of my sort of client stroke friends kind of contacted me and said, well, um, Chris, you know, we, we really miss sort of chatting with you sort of X times a week about markets and stuff. Um, you know, maybe we we could informally do this. Um, anyway, it ended up that a couple of those people became my inaugural clients. I actually had to set up a proper company in order to uh, build them and everything else uh, for my time. And it just sort of rolled from there. And even today, um, I don't really have a, an overt business plan per se, other than just to kind of put stuff out there, talk with people that I come across, or, or as I say, I like, or are perhaps in my network. And it just kind of organically builds from there, which is which is great fun. So yes, I, I would agree. It's, it's kind of people who've become from sort of friends or contemporaries through to clients. And then obviously that leads to other people and, and stuff like that. So it's been an interesting ride. And my, my overriding feeling is the genie's out the bottle. I don't think I could ever go back to institutional fund management. I just, um, it feels so constraining to me nowadays um, versus this slightly more kind of idiosyncratic, strange world that I now inhabit, which is, you know, a tremendous fun, certainly has pushed me intellectually to levels that I never thought I would have been capable of. Um, and I'm still learning. And that's the really great and exciting thing. You know, I'm in in my mid-40s, but I kind of feel, and I take huge inspiration from sort of the Buffets and the Mongers of this world, I've got another 40 years to go, which, you know, 
a few years ago, five and a half years ago, I just never would have thought that. I would have thought, you know, um, once the retirement age comes comes upon me, then I would exit into the night, you know, worn down by the city and everything uh, around it. Um, it's funny because that, that, that really echoes a, a point that Russell Napier, the strategist, has made, which is uh, this is a, a business where you get paid really well to learn on the job. Mm. No, I, I quite concur on that. And the thing is, though, you have to, if you do it on institutional time, then you have to accept everything that comes with that. And that might be, um, as I say, the omnipresent meeting schedule, um, the, the committees, the, the perhaps the politics and everything else. And, you know, that that is something which everyone in their career, particularly in the first one third, two thirds of their career has to accept, and that's part of the game. Um, but as you get a little bit older, or perhaps other options become apparent, you know, I'm, I was really happy to leave all of that behind because the thing is, and it's kind of amazing, the biggest um, sort of driver to me having more time to think, maybe possibly even becoming a better investor, undoubtedly that has become so, has been that. I've spent more time doing it. And, you know, taking away all of these crazy meetings and everything else has been the most liberating aspect to it. And now I spend so much more time on investments than I did when I was an institutional fund manager responsible for, you know, stupid amounts of money um, and obviously on behalf of a variety of clients. And, and, you know, that to me is the most crazy aspect of it. So um, I would agree, you do learn on the job, but um, I, I really do prefer the learning on the sort of the stroke me me time or something around which I can control a bit more. So do you have a preferred method of uh, analysis when you, when it comes to making your investments? Um, I think it's it necessarily is is it comes from a variety of different directions. So I am somebody who who works from both macro and sort of micro bottom up kind of stock picking perspectives. I probably spend I reckon about a third of my time on macro, and that that's not particularly different from when I was an institutional investor. But um, I think it's really important. Nothing exists in a vacuum. You've got to understand some of the big themes out there, or at least get. Be, be aware of the debate because we all know that however you invest on whatever level you invest sentiment and psychology matter in the in the shorter term so that that pushes things around so i, I like the macro side i spent about a third of my time doing that and that from a top-down perspective influences what i look at how i see the world um uh, valuation perceptions and, and related the rest of my time i would look a bit more classically bottom up that reflects my my, my years and years as a, as a stock picker analyst and everything else and there for me it comes back down to the old um chestnuts of of kind of earnings and cash flow and, and particularly the latter i mean as i get um ever more experienced in the world of investments i realize that that cash flow is is really is harder to fiddle than, than earnings it does give you better insights but it's it's the fusion of the two and i think some people they they're very purist and they look for certain ratios and everything else and that's very nice but you know you can have a broader events exogenous events which push you away from those things and don't make them that helpful similarly just to look macro for me um there's they're sort of a, a very plural world out there and some of the company insights particularly if you're investing in stocks rather than just index instruments or something uh, very much more top down can have that extra level of insight which can be very potentially remunerative so so that's that's how i think about it a bit of both and then really focusing, you know, the overriding obsession is primary research. And um, I, I learned, I guess, the hard way that um, uh, secondary sources, brokerage sources and the like, um, they can take you down some interesting paths, but there are maybe rather agendas there. And so there's it's, nothing it's all like... It's stories, really, isn't it? That's, that's the, the sort of the reservation I would have. The, the, it's, it's very easy to fall prey to what, what you might call narrative fallacy. Yes. So I heard I heard a great I heard a great anecdote from I don't know if you know Michael Cavell. Yeah, Michael, mm, I do. Michael yes. Cavell is for, for those people who don't aren't familiar with his name is I would call an ambassador for the the trend following um, industry the trend following sector in in hedge fund land. And I heard heard him on one of his podcasts recently, and he he was citing the example of a guy. Who'd, who'd spent years uh, investigating Bitcoin? So this will be something. This will be music to uh, to Paul's ears potentially. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. But, but it, it spent years, years sort of trying to pin down what what Bitcoin and and the blockchain, but particularly Bitcoin was all about. And he said this is a bit like a, a detective story. And so after having spent sort of years investigating Bitcoin, he then sort of plunged in, rode 
rode the price all the way down. So he's probably down by, I, I guess, 90% or so. And, and Michael Cavell just made the point that if he'd spent his time uh, investigating trend following and said he might actually have made some money. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> exactly, because they're fantastic trends. They've been amazing trends. And in, in, in my, my discipline is technical analysis. We don't care what mm. the market is. We just care whether there's a trend or not and whether that trend is turning. Yeah. Um, so the thing is that, that to, to be fair, Paul, though, that to, to, to many, even professional investors, that's like heresy. The idea yeah. that it doesn't even matter what you're talking about, what, yeah. what, what in, individual instrument you're looking at, it's just about the price action. Yeah. But it is very difficult to to respond to that favorably in our in our profession. Yeah, it, it's, it is, it is it, like a know, heretical point of view. I mean, the problem with it is it's uh, it's like anything. It's just it's so simple that people ignore it. I mean, the the, the point is that if something is going down in a trend. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what the narrative is. If it's going down, it's going down. So therefore, that's the trend, and you you find a way to follow the trend, and vice versa. And then when the market is in a range, as the S and P and the the Wall, you know, the the Dow Jones is in a massive range this year, we're in a kind of neutral position until it breaks out. So you you go, <clears throat> you look to sell the market once it's stopped rising and starts falling you know again that's so simple that people don't follow it they they fall in full prey to the media and as you say stories so it is it is endlessly fascinating but long may it continue because it gives you an advantage why gentlemen why why do we think trend followers are having such a tough time right now because you think that there are now some quite quite sizable trends developing, notably in the equity market, uh, not necessarily in a, in a good way. Why, why are these guys struggling, do we think? I think they're struggling because the trends that they are looking for are are sort of a, a, of a greater range than the volatility, the, 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 the range volatility that we're seeing, say, in the S&P is crazy i mean it's 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 not actually not going anywhere but it the market so you're saying is, it's, it's you're saying it's basically whipsaw market it's conditions. a whipsaw market that is really slapping everybody about and so you're trying to get a position on and the market's down 700 then it's up then it goes to back to up 100 down 150 then up 200 then down 500 again it's really all over the place and this is a sort of market that then then will develop into a, a smoother trend but the trend following funds will find it hard to to get a, a decent trigger um, in this environment. But it, it's we're very close to. Uh, there's two answers to it. One is the market, and uh, when the market starts to turn, you get this sort of volatility. Um, and the other thing is, it's just getting rid of weak hands. It's getting getting yeah. rid of people who, who don't necessarily believe in the strategy and they'll throw in the towel. And that always happens just before you get the biggest moves. So I, I would put it down to those two factors. Yeah, I, I mean, I think from my perspective, it would be, I would agree with a lot of that actually. And ultimately as an investor, the price is is, is that end aspect of it. It's, it's what ultimately matters, what allows you to crystallize ideas, no matter how you, you form them or forge them. I think in terms of today's markets, you've got two very clear things occurring. One is that we have some element of regime shift. And whenever you have that, um, as as Paul just mentioned, it's kind of very tricky in terms of those, those turning points, things get moved around. Around. And I think if you sort of scrape below that, look at it a bit more fundamentally, this shift from the, the world of QE to a world of QT, you know, quantitative tightening rather than quantitative easing, is having an impact. Now, clearly it's not as um, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Uh, you know, there's multiple issues going on, and you only need to look at the differing tightenings by the central banks. You know, some a bit more advanced than others, some not doing it at all. And you know, that is impacting local markets accordingly. So, it's a right old mess. Unsurprisingly, most investors haven't seen conditions like this, um, or at least have, have perhaps not experienced um, highly volatile conditions for a sustained period of time. You know, perhaps those that are a bit more schooled in the excitements of 
98 or the early 2000 to 2003 period. But, you know, lots of players in the market haven't seen that. They've seen 2007 to 9 maybe, or maybe they haven't even seen that at all. And this Ooh. is sort of a big shock and yeah. a big psychological sort of fear issue. So I think there's a few, for me, macro level things occurring, which is changing the backdrop. And you've got this absorption moment or it's kind of a, a very elongated absorption moment, which is causing, in the case of trend followers, a bit of a few challenges. And of course, from a fundamental investing perspective, you've got to get your heads around the fact that some of the old rules which worked in the sort of the post-2009 era are no longer working. And it's a different world. What you pay, what you look for and everything else has changed. So guess what? A few, a few gray hairs matter in investment. Who, who would have thought? Indeed, indeed. Actually, that reminds me of something that, that I that I was meaning to say in the last podcast, so I'm going to get it out here. There's a, there's some technology that um, <clears throat> there's some interesting decisions are going to be made about how uh, cars decide because the cars are going to be driving themselves, um, how they decide to deal with an accident. And there's a moral dilemma where people from around the world were driving uh, driving to the kids or driving to the old folk. Exactly. Do you drive into some kids and do you drive into some old folk and one would have assumed automatically that people would say, well, you know, drive into the old folk because um, the kids have got their lives before them. But that's, actually, a, very, that's a very Remain perspective. <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually, interestingly, this, this survey was done on, online. It was just to, to find out how, you know, people would respond to this. And they, it's, apparently it's, it's still going and, you know, people are still responding to it. Um, but people in Asia obviously have greater respect for the elders and the knowledge that they, they've accumulated. So they would drive into the kids. Now, I, th- I thought that was a very shocking perspective, but a very interesting one for me. Well, not, not only that, not only that, Paul, but also from the perspective of the insurance industry. The, I mean, this is going to sound brutal, but the kids are worthless. I'm not uh, saying they're worthless. No, but no, no, no. I know. Adults, I know so. exactly how you mean it. Yeah, I mean, I mean clearly, we, if they're clearly if they're voting remain, they're also worthless. But that's a separate argument. Well, yeah, we can so, come on to that. But but this is <laughs> but this is these are real questions. How, how well, does because you don't if you were driving the car, you you would have to make a split decision, split sure. second decision as to what to do. But we can program this into the technology. And how what decision do we make? I mean, this is I think this is fascinating. <laughs> I'm going to throw a curveball in here, which on, is that, and I've I've come to this 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 theory based on a, a little bit of international travel over the years and related. Of course, famously in in the Chinese markets, you know, we, we have red on the screens here when it's all going wrong. Yeah, that they're they're the other way around. They are for reasons of of cultural preference towards certain colours and everything else. Yeah. Um, but it's just strike me more generally that, um, uh, and certainly it's it's very interesting the reaction to falling markets. In in Asia, I always feel that they are slightly more momentum-based mm. and um, hence a falling market is more of, a, more of a threat than anything else. Whilst I like to think, and you don't see much evidence of it recently, but falls in markets, you know, classic sort of Buffett-esque sort of quote, you know, is is great opportunity rather than a threat. Um, and so I do wonder whether in the case of, of the theoretical kind of um, autonomous car question, whether there will be some room for different geographic preferences uh, based on culture and society and everything else, which, you know, maybe are also played out a little bit in the markets in the shorter term as well. Yeah, I, I, th- I think so. I mean, <clears throat> I think it brings you back to, I guess, trend following. Um, you don't care which way the market goes. You, you, you would think that the more Western markets would be set up for a, a correction or be able to, to ride that out. But the question here, Chris, and this is where I think it becomes interesting, is how big a correction are we talking about? And will it go way beyond even the people who think there's going to be a correction? And that, that I think, is the risk that we're we're approaching in the next few years i think it could be yeah. something much bigger than 2008 Yes. I mean, I think that that is very fair. And this comes back to this whole, is this a proper regime shift? You know, is it just an evolution or is it a proper regime shift? And that then comes back down to what does a world of non at the margin huge QE look like? And, and it is kind of interesting to me. You've got clearly in countries such as America, I think correctly, that they're gr- trying to grasp that nettle. And you can already see the sort of the shorter term impacts in terms of uh, the president's antagonism towards the Fed and everything else, a fear of higher rates and all of that, what what all that may mean. Clearly, Europe's at the cusp of sort of just edging towards that. We we should hear from Draghi confirming 
that, you know, no new QE at the margin. And again, I think that's sensible. But the trouble is, is that, of course, local economic growth rates are kind of negligible. And clearly that has implications in terms of earnings and valuations and the like. And then on the other extreme, I guess you've got Asia with, it seems to me Japan hasn't really kind of stopped the whole QE thing, um, which again is kind of fascinating to me because if, if that's our future, then it, we we're into some very warped financial markets. So again, I, th- I see this great dichotomy. Some people still running with it, but again, that surely will end in madness. Um, defaults in massive inflation or related at some point in the future. You've got others grasping the nettle, but kind of realizing that maybe the next 10 years are going to be somewhat different in terms of lower returns and related, and others sort of stuck in the middle, not sure which way to fall. Um, what it comes back down to ultimately is the biggest problem out there is debt. We all know that. I mean, it's beyond, we look at our personal accounts, individuals, um, uh, let alone collectively at the, at the national level. Debt is the ultimate um, is the ultimate challenge. And we all know that debt is only solved by default inflation or, I guess, war. So, you know, when I look at it, that's a very different backdrop from maybe, um, sure, 10 years ago, but certainly a generation or two ago. And, you know, that's ultimately the thing which I think will drive financial market returns to be to be much lower than what we've experienced and, and all benefited from probably over the last uh, 10 years, let alone the last 30 years. You mentioned war, Chris. Um, we were recording this just two days before a, a seminal vote on Brexit. <laughs> I don't think it's going to go that far. I, hate to, I don't think it's going to go that far yet. Thank goodness. Remain, remain and leave, I think, can, can avoid the war option. But it's, oh my goodness, it's, is it messy? I mean, I was, just before coming on here, um, I was just reading a few newspaper headlines, as you do, just to amuse myself more than anything, rather than educate myself. And um, uh, it, it's a mess, isn't it? I mean, my goodness. It's funny. I, I sit on a couple of committees, um, uh, investment committees for various clients and related. And one of them I was last week. And um, it's quite an interesting setup. There's 20 people on this committee, which is probably too many um, by a factor of four. But anyway, there's 20 people on this committee. There's oh, 19. 19, from... 19 positive. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. I think I always think the committee of one works best. But um, anyway, the um, there was 19 on the committee from North America. And there's me from representing the rest of the world. So, you know, you can guess it's quite an interesting debate. And it's quite interesting to see how they perceive Brexit, because they ask me questions about Brexit in Europe and stuff like that. And, um, uh, you know, I think their general view has kind of evolved over this year from um, sort of, you know, kind of complete indifference to, you know, uh, what on earth is going on? This is a complete disaster to, again, massive, complete indifference. Um, they, they just can't believe that uh, these, the sort of the um, preciseness and the, the sort of the different angles that come out of this, of this uh, debate uh, have occurred. Um, in terms of, you know, I, I have my own long-held views about what I think is going to happen, which broadly speaking, I would, I guess, summarise as um, a, a soft Brexit with a transition period. But my goodness, we've made terribly hard work about getting there. Um, and clearly the potential, as we talk today, for uh, even broader shorter-term ramifications in terms of um, a second referendum, a new government, a new prime minister and related, they're all still on the table. Um, I, I kind of hope saner, saner heads prevail and people kind of realize that this kind of matters not not just at a sort of a, a sort of a constitutional and related level but from a very practical in terms of growth certainty and everything else so um we shall see i mean i, I wish i could get the crystal ball out and work out exactly what's going to happen but all i do know is it's always more important to to react to these things than to try to sort of um predict them and, and yeah and 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 my, my perspective would be the reaction function surely has to be the the, the building anomaly is that the, the sheer indifference or hatred towards UK assets is overdone. Oh, and yeah. it might be that we've we've horribly stymied our country through various actions. It doesn't matter whether you're a lever or a remainer. You know, this whole mess, this whole debate has been just, you know, a gratuitous kind of um, uh, talking to your own um, uh, sort of 
just a horrible mess in terms of trying to work out what on earth to think. But but the ultimate action or, uh, reaction of all of this is that there are some great building opportunities in, in UK equities, which I'm very excited about. And as an investor, I, I kind of, and I've come around to the perspective of sort of what I would call anomaly investing ever more increasingly over the last um, 10 years. And particularly when you get this great dif- di- sort of deviation between perception and reality. Um, and as I say, the, wor- the way the world seems to perceive the UK assets, um, particularly when you look at fund management surveys and stuff like that, very, very negative. I, I, I see opportunity, not in everything, but in some things. And, and to me, that's good. I don't know if you've had a look at the chart of, um, of the German stock market recently or some of the other mm. European stock markets. It's not like they're exactly doing very well at all. In fact, much worse than the UK. So I don't those, know. What... Those, those, those stockbrokers were only obeying orders, Paul. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, yeah, Europe, I mean, Europe, again, is this, this whole, I spend a lot of time um, uh, writing and thinking about, about Europe. And actually, it, this pan-European equities was the area that I first sort of specialised in. And can you believe it? When I started in the city, the reason I looked at, at Europe was because I kind of worked out that the UK was sort of a bit crowded in terms of people looking at it. And I wanted to differentiate a bit. So I went pan-Europe. And at that time, you know, Germany, France, and all these exotic places, were um, they, they were perceived as being very sexy from an investment perspective. We were going to see liberalisation. Europe was going to prove to be a dynamic, you know, inducement to, to economic growth and everything else. And obviously, it hasn't kind of worked out quite like that. But Chelsea you know, Breeze. <laughs> Tell surprise, indeed. That's right. Um, but bottom line is, Europe has some of the some similar setups to the UK. You know, obviously, the the big debate there is the the sort of the angst over what European Union 2.0 is going to look like. And we can obviously see in the Italian budget debate, the, the French riots, the kind of evolution of German domestic politics and everything else. That yeah, it, that there's not very a, a very clear vision. However. My perception is that when I, I kind of cast it forward over the next year or two, um, there are some things where I think that they're trying to get their head around in, in a more kind of solid and cohesive manner. And as a consequence, again, I would say you've got this building differential between perception and reality. The perception increasingly is that Europe is, is yesterday's continent, is, is, is almost uninvestable. It's not quite as bad as the UK today, but it's sort of just a hair's breadth, less, less bad, etc. But, but the reality is, and I was looking at things such as um, comments from individual companies or some, some of the, even some of the aggregate earnings numbers or projections, which, you know, should should have you would have thought logically factored in some of this angst and riots and everything else debate going on around it, and actually there is a story there, and it strikes me as interesting that when I look at projections for U.S. and European earnings over the next year, in in some surveys or certainly on my own estimations, Europe is actually slightly ahead in terms of year-on-year potential earnings growth now. We all know that may not come to come to pass. Uh, we've all been disappointed on earnings before, and I guess that's just the, the part of the game. But again, I would say from a stock picking perspective, uh, I'm quite interested by Europe because, again, you've got some companies that are perhaps not necessarily particularly European-based or actually have businesses which are much more reasonable or cash generative or whatever other metric you're looking for biased than uh, perhaps a more general market sweep and pessimism across the whole market would suggest. So, again, as a stock picker, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. As a macro thinker, God, that sounds a bit self-important, but as, as a macro muser, let's put it that way, you know, I can see all the mess, but it's within that kind of tension that that, that kind of excites me, which I think throws up potential opportunities. So, I have to say, I can see the big picture macro issues, debt, for me, being the biggest one, the whole QEQT transition, valuations, all the other subsets off that. But as an individual investor, somebody who is thinking about trying to find individual stocks within that macro framework, I actually think it's quite interesting. And there are opportunities out there. And again, it's it's a time for, if you are a, an active investor, a time for active investment rather than, than, than passive or, or other options. I wondered if the Fed would react to the market falling. And therefore, you know, obviously there's the debate between Trump and the Fed, but ultimately the Fed could just still react to the fact that the markets start to go down. And whilst they, they may feel as though 
they don't want to look as though they've been pressured to do something that could spark a reaction so i'm in a similar way although i'm bearish i'm still looking at the potential for what will turn the market around and and what you've just said there chris is very interesting it's very interesting so you you look at looking past the smoke you you actually see some opportunity and that's usually a very good time i have to say the charts look pretty terrible on on the european Mm. markets They've, they've gone down in a straight line but that doesn't mean that they they can't you know obviously stop just a lob a grenade into the swimming pool <laughs> oh, what a surprise uh, tim that you're going to be doing uh, that <laughs> it just struck me i because I, I i i think i agree with pretty much everything that, uh, that chris has just said the only the only sort of cloud i would sort of um dark cloud i would i would highlight is if if we get this this this, this using this orwellian phrase as people's vote or, or brexit any kind of realistic brexit is is thwarted or overturned that the thought does occur to me that you know if you're going to behave like a banana republic you're going to get a valuation like a banana republic and that's that's the only the only sort of criticism or or, or just or get again just sort of cloud cloudy issue i, w- I would highlight that be, be careful what you wish for if 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 this thing does not get through uh, on the way that 17 and a half million people want wanted it to two years ago then the implications for democracy, rule of law, et cetera, et cetera, are, are not encouraging. Politics is really at a new time, all-time low, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 the trust... Trust, trust, trust... Trust in politicians. Whoever, whatever side you're on, whether you're Remain or Brexit, Brexit, whatever side, this is awful. And that's what gets me. I mean, for, for people who are involved in the markets, such as ourselves, you, you can respond to the market conditions and... Therefore, we're, we're dealing basically with investments and how to deal with the market. So we're used to situations that can be very far from normal. Um, but for the man on the street and the woman on the street, you know, they, they, I, I, what could they be thinking? I mean, what can they be thinking of how this country is being run at the moment? It's just it's just terrible. There's a there's a there's a line there's a nice line by Bertolt Brecht. I don't think we've had this one before. Um, it's from a, a, a poem called Die Lösung, um, and it, it ends. Would it not be easier in that case for the government to dissolve the people and elect another? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> no, I mean the, the thing is, you would have thought with, and, and I, I agree about the whole the whole faith in politics thing has has, has reached generational lows, and it, it is worrying that you go back back to previous times when populism is probably the wrong collective description for you know alternative voting, but it's the most popular one to coin a phrase at the moment, and it is kind of worrying when you look back at previous times in populism rode as high as it as it is at the moment in the polls. Which is back to the back to the thirties really, isn't it? It is it is back to the thirties. And you know, I seem to recall a few local difficulties then and in, in the subsequent few years. Um but but as a consequence, as an investor, it seems to me as if um we got we got three things that you've got to kind of ultimately grab hold of. Number one is um you can't fully quickly predict the future. It is it is multifarious and, and complex. And as a consequence, you ultimately are probably going to have to apply a lower valuation metric. So the number one rule, I think, is that valuations are not going to see some of the excitements that we've seen in, in previous years or related. And, you know, that won't come as a huge surprise to many people. But of course, there's that the adjustment moment when kind of you can't just put something on 20 times next year because that's just the way it is. It has to come down to something a bit lower. And I think that is clearly consistent with higher interest rates and discounted cash flow measures and all of those sort of, you know, wondrous tools of insight, not um, looking and, and, and changing. I think the second aspect is beyond sort of the, the kind of the macro thing is, is back to the whole importance of, of being um, a kind of flexible mindset, looking at, be it top down or bottom up, just, just using information to your benefit and looking for those differences between perception and reality, where actually maybe in the world of investments, a company is doing something actually quite interesting and nobody cares, or vice versa if you're a shorter. Um, and I think the third aspect is that um, we we ultimately have to acknowledge that there is a certain randomness to this whole thing. And um, there are bigger things and more important things in investment markets. So, um, which sometimes in the middle of a bull market doesn't seem to be the case. It's the only thing that matters is the market, but um, I guess it isn't. I love Tim's story about the uh, the fund manager in Japan. You know, the guy who went out there and he got a he got a red carpet welcome because 
they hadn't seen one for such a long time. Oh, Tim, inevitably you, you tell the story better, but I, I think that's that's it's such a great story. Yeah, it, it is, and we've seen so many of these things. What is it? That, that famous story from um, uh, from from one up on Wall Street, I think it is. From uh, when when I think we, we we see, I think he goes out to um, uh, some somebody in Louisiana or something, something in in the deepest darkest part of the states that nobody has has been to for ages. And again, they roll out the red carpet and whatever. And of course, it's a great investment opportunity. And this, this is it. It's you have to work harder in times of um, of times of strife and uncertainty. You know, it's no longer laid up laid up there in front of you. The really exciting thing to me, though, as an investor, and this is what I've seen over the last five and a half years to a huge degree, is that um, as an institutional investor, you think you're in a wonderful position of informational knowledge, and you're not, because you're being fed lots of secondary bits of information, which, as we've already discussed, are you know, disappointing levels of, of, of real insight. But in today's world, you know, there is so much information out there, it's ridiculous. And of course, the skill then becomes in interpretation. And the interpretation element of it, that again, plays to a bit of experience and a bit of ability to kind of compare and contrast things of, of real importance. And, you know, it's back to what we talked about, sort of getting away from narrative and stuff like that, kind of getting behind the scenes and working out what actually really is important. And that's what excites me as an individual investor you now actually can um, log on to webcasts or conference calls or look at presentation documents or look at 10 cues or whatever else it might be whatever whatever excites you and turns you on and access some really interesting stuff and make decisions the way that you want to make them and then see what happens and respond accordingly and that you know you go back when I started in the city, you couldn't do that. You know, if I wanted to look at a Spanish company and I don't speak Spanish, I'm suckered because the accounts are in Spanish for six months and they only get translated to English, you know, uh, half a year later or oh, something. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's I think that's, I think that's absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. I forget who it was, but it was probably somebody like Ray Dalio. But he, I, the person in question, the fund manager in question recently said, you know, it used to be the case in, say, the 60s and 70s, um, you need the, the best investors were the people with the biggest funnels. And now uh, the best investors are the people with the biggest filters. That we've gone from sort of drought to to no to, to from famine to feast. That there's now we're drowning in information. So it's now, as you rightly say, it's all about interpretation. Yeah, I think that's to me. And you know, I, I don't know whether we've got any particular skills in this or not. I guess you you build up a few things that you like or you don't like. But all I do know is, if you want to play in this game, if you want to actually try and make a difference, you can now. And you don't need to be an institutional fund manager or an X one or somebody attuned to the investment game completely. You can be you know, an, an ordinary layman, somebody perhaps in a different industry or job. And But if you want to play and if you want to try to sort of work things out and get access to sort of primary information and insights from it, get people to speak to you on webcasts or whatever, you can do that. And to me, that's exciting. You know, this is what we're coming back down, I think, to old school investment um, insights. And, you know, computers and related are <clears throat> hugely helpful and and you know, productivity enhancing machines. But ultimately, it's that ability to say, my goodness, um, this, this, I don't like this, you know, or I trust this person, or this, this strikes me as interesting, or they lied about this six months ago, which, which, you know, makes all the difference, I think. There's a very important point here that um, as people are inevitably going to be more and more accountable for their own savings, for their own pensions, because clearly government is going to be um, edging away from that responsibility. The state is going to be edging away from that responsibility and, and, and leaving it to the individual. The individual, him, him or herself, also has huge advantages over the institutional managers uh, in a way that people don't necessarily uh, fully grasp. Just one of which is, if you don't have to report your portfolio returns on a daily, weekly, monthly and quarterly basis, that's actually a tremendous advantage. Yeah. And I can tell you, as an as an ex-institutional fund manager, I'm sure you'll you you've got similar war stories, um, Tim, that you know, the whole hassle of having to speak to a committee about your last I mean, it got ridiculous. I don't mind talking about the last quarter's performance or the last year's performance. That that strikes me as sensible, you know, uh, accountability. Um, you would hope that sort of you're not gonna get das booter after a bad quarter or something, but you know, there you go. But when it got to the point of ha me having to report on last week's performance, I mean it was oh, just ridiculous. I, I, I can I can trump oh. I can trump I can I can oh, yeah. trust that. There was a, 
There was a story I came across, I think it's probably a Bloomberg story, that at the height of the crisis, so this would be in, in the, the, the sort of latter stage of 2008, Goldman Sachs fund management fund managers were having to report on an hourly basis. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Deary me. Um, you know, if, if you're trading fast, then then maybe there's a rational, you know, maybe it's a you know, PNL a prudent uh, measure, but it just seems for anything which where, where you're not kind of fast, fast frequency trading or something like that, that just seems ridiculous. I remember we, we had this committee meeting. It was every Friday, and they they introduced my last few months working for this particular fund manager. They introduced the weekly performance uh, overview, and they had the last month, the last quarter, the last year as well, but the last week, and it was like, I remember one time it was well. So Chris, your your fund seems to have. Um, underperformed over the last week. Why is that? And I said, well, um, we've got, uh, I think at the time, around about 50% of the money's invested in in America. And I said, uh, well, uh, the the American, uh, forget the setup, but basically the American markets were closed and were playing catch up or something. And basically they'd missed a day's performance right. and they were going to catch that up the next day. They, it was some technical issue like mm. that. And, and I explained this and um, and uh, the, the, the chair of the committee kind of slightly glazed over and says, so... Um, so we'll just put that down to bad stock picking, shall we? Whoa. And it was, um, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, I don't, and it, it, it won't surprise you that a month or two afterwards was when I tendered my resignation yeah. uh, on the basis that that was just one of the frustrations. But you know, this is again why an individual, be it somebody schooled in the ways of finance or somebody who's just enthusiastic amateur, can with effort, hard work, and everything else, can make a difference. And people think that. You know, um, financial professionals or people working for very posh-sounding investment bank types have a, a massive advantage, and they don't anymore. That may have been true last generation, but certainly is not true now. It's an amazing insight, the parallel between the internet and the amount of information that's on there and what you choose to take from it. So you can choose to educate yourself in anything these days and absolutely anything. And there's, there's courses and there's ways of doing it, whatever your interest may be, whether it's finance or photography or something else, there's a way you, you can watch, you know, cats on skateboards if you want, but you can also learn about some really interesting things. And I, I think that's, that's where it becomes, you know, so, uh, so powerful. As Tim always says, yeah. you know, we're, it, it, <clears throat> we do live like Kings and we just don't realize it, how lucky we are. Uh, to, to you know to have this technology um and and to have these opportunities so i think i think you're absolutely right the an individual can make better decisions than these bigger institutions and uh and there's no reason why they shouldn't there's a terrific story and i like to think it's true uh, but it doesn't matter because it's a good story anyway um of a couple in the states and he uh basically took the the broker's advice and bought 10 stocks and then put the stock certificates in a coffee can and, and basically left them there. And the wife would would religiously uh, follow the, the, the broker's updates and, and upgrades and downgrades. And so be churning this portfolio. And basically he, he, he died and he, he, the, 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 his portfolio ended up being worth something like 10 times what, what his, his widow's portfolio was worth because he just basically bought and forgot. And, if, if, if it's not a true story, it ought to be true. Well, because, there, 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 there is no. just as a parallel for that. I mean, there, there is the, you know, the random walk theory. Do you know where that comes from? Mm. Do you know how they've decided that the, <clears throat> well, random walk theory basically says that the markets are random. So I, I hear this a lot because, of course, I use charts and technicals and people who want to debunk it say, well, the market's just random. Haven't you heard of random walk theory? Um, <clears throat> if the markets are random, then there's no point looking at any other form of analysis they seem to forget. So it negates economics because the market's random. So, you know, but anyway, so it's not just for technical analysis that you can use that as a as a, a rebuttal. But the, the point is random walk theory uh, was a test that they did in the 1920s, I believe, where they blindfolded um, a researcher put a copy of the Wall Street uh, Journal, whatever it was, put all the stocks on the wall, and they got somebody to throw these darts at the stocks, and they randomly picked the the stocks, and then they asked economists what they think would outperform, and they found that this random pick of of stocks outperformed 
the predictions of the economists. So they, they they then drew the conclusion that the market is completely random. Now they've done various uh, iterations of this in the you know since. So they've had like um, <clears throat> nine year olds picking stocks. They've had monkeys cats, picking stocks. Cats, you know they've yes. had they've had every every version of this. When I was at the bank, it was a. Uh, I remember there was a uh, when I was at RBS, um, there was a uh, we used to have a, a morning meeting, and one of the senior managers would say, "Should we ask the economists or should we ask some random some dustmen what they think?" Because <laughs> there was this story of of these Lambeth Council dustmen who were asked what they thought of the economy, and they predicted interest rates, the market where the market would end, and inflation for the end of the year, and they beat the top city economists. So that <laughs> that. Play straight into exactly what you're saying there, Chris. It's all down to the individual can do it and possibly much better than they think. They, they can do because this whole institutional baggage you have, you know, um, it's funny how one particular investment bank, it, it always amused me that they had a lot of very good people joining them. But once they were part of the machine, that their capability to sort of make good calls or say something of actual interest was was horribly constrained. I remember on another level, I did a, this must have been, it showed you how long the Brexit debate's been going. It's about two years ago, I did a, a, a panel uh, with a variety of other people um, on on Brexit. This is obviously in the early foothills of the Brexit debate. You know, little did we think that we'd still be discussing it with such fervour two odd years later. Anyway, um, the and I remember I, I opined as I did in my usual manner. You know, uh, without without with a little bit of thought and you know no no um, uh, sort of regard for what I was saying. I just sort of said what I thought. And there was somebody from a, an investment bank who literally had his lawyer in the front row and literally could not say anything. It was absolutely amazing. He confirmed his name and who he worked for. But beyond that, that was it. Wow. And, you know, we, I can't answer this question. And I thought to myself, what is the point? And um, anyway, it, it is what it is. But as an individual, absolutely. The thing is, though, and you, you then come back down to, okay, so – how do you filter and and uh, get the real insights? What really is important, and that's the tricky bit. And that's where a little bit of training, a bit of a bit of time in the markets can can help. No doubt about that. Because um, the one good thing about working for institutions is that you know you are forced to justify what you think. You have to perhaps uh, live by performance levels or, um, you know, see whether the product that you're managing or running performs or something. You know, you have to play play the game or be part of the game and that that does drive you in a, in a disciplined fashion so it, I, i've certainly taken a lot from my 15 plus years in the institutional world but actually i found in the last five six years that the wonderful world of things like twitter which is so much deeper than kind of people taking pictures of their lunch or whatever else or you know kind of comedy well, comments and everything you, I'm else glad you said, i'm glad you said lunch there yeah, I said lunch. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, lunch box. Just, I, w I was just, 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 just thinking ahead to be honest for a couple of hours, get a bit peckish. But um, the, um, but the reality is, it's. I mean, the one thing, if people say to me, they said, "Well, God, it's crazy that you've you've kind of left big institutions and whatever. Um, how on earth do you get your information?" I say, "Well." <laughs> Have you ever dis have you ever discovered Twitter? There is so much there. Of course, we all know ninety percent of it is complete crock. But you know, the ten percent that is actually quite interesting. I have learned so much, and I learn every day. And genuinely, when I log on in the morning, and you know, I, I admit it, I'm a complete sadder. I get up early in the morning, and I first thing I do is log on to Twitter and have a look at what Tim said. See what Tim said. And have basically. a look. Well, obviously, yes. But but what's Tim know, been up to? What mischief? I did, didn't need. I didn't need to say that, but yeah, absolutely. But but obviously, there, there, there's a bunch of different things out there, which is just, it blows your mind. And it puts you in that position of actually being able to think about all sorts of different things in a very open architecture. Unfortunately, that does mean, as I say, 90% of it is complete rubbish. But the 10% that is actually quite interesting, um, it's really um, allowed me to not only um, do things in my continuing business life that probably I couldn't have done 10 or 20 years ago because just the information availability wouldn't have been there. But second, um, learn. And simply put, learn about things from experts in areas that I couldn't previously touch or access. 
it's all there, or at least elements of it are there in order to allow you then to jog it on to the next level, which is to think, well, what does this mean? Where does this push this price or this company or this macro market or whatever it might be? Um, it's, it's truly fascinating. And if you put the time in and um, uh, interpret the information in a, in a broadly sensible manner, then the world is your oyster. It reminds me of the uh, American academic who, who told his class that if it, we used to think that if you gave, well, it used to be said that if you gave a million monkeys a million keyboards, you'd, you'd end up with the complete works of Shakespeare. Now, now, thanks to Twitter, we know this is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, it's the thing with Twitter is though that there is there is so much out there, and obviously the the whole bot area is is kind of fascinating. I, I seem to be. Continually followed by a whole range of bots who kind it's of Teresa, it's Theresa May again. She's on your case, really. It's probably as Theresa trying to work out what I think in order to then factor it into government policy or something. Who knows? But you know, it's but it's it's just part of the game. And I have to say, for all the bad points of Twitter, there are a lot of good points. And still today, I speak to contemporaries who are still working in the city, still you know beholden by mortgages or school fees or whatever else it is that keeps them there. Um, and I say to them, you know, are you on Twitter? And they said, well, you know, not, not allowed. Really. Not allowed or too many meetings. Oh, for goodness sake, you're not going to learn what you can learn on Twitter versus a meeting. It's just night and day. Tim's always said this about Twitter, actually. And in the early days, I couldn't see the value in it. I mean, I could see why it existed because it's almost like an open text message to people. But I wasn't sure of the longevity of it. But my early views of Twitter were that the people who should be on it weren't and the people who weren't on it should be. But it, that seems to have changed a lot because there is, as Tim says, so much great information on there. And it's almost got to the point where you wonder, a bit like the internet, how long something that's so good and so useful can exist before somebody decides that they want to control it or take it away. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's, definitely, um, it, it, it's definitely an amazing source. And Tim was very early in picking that up. And, uh, you know, long may it continue. Talking of information sources, do you actually... You write a weekly, don't you? Or, or you write a regular I, document? I, well, <laughs> so, so I, I, I write a variety of things. Um, for, for sort of... For, for kind of private consumption, for, for clients, I, I write a variety of things. There's at their request, everything from a, a daily to a quarterly or annually. So I, I, I kind of find that the medium of writing and me kind of work quite well. As I said earlier on, it helps me to think and, and you know, focus on ideas and important aspects. Do Goldman Sachs um, ask for an hourly during the crisis or, you know? They haven't yet, but no. I, I'm welcome for, for, for them to, you know, if they want to come and talk to me, that's absolutely fine. Right. I don't think they're going to be interested, though, it would be my, my unfortunate, brutal uh, thought on the subject. Um, but from a public consumption, um, X, my, the, the comedy range of tweets that I, I put out, um, I, I do... Uh, currently put out something Monday to Friday, which people can access via uh, via Twitter. I, I sort of have it on a sort of an open architecture thing. They can just click through and it just magically appears. And again, that's just me at a very broad level just thinking. And what I tend to do is um, uh, pull together a, a, a bunch of different charts and just weave some some text between them. And, it, and it's honestly just me thinking. And what, what I find funny about it is I, I often see that this is the genesis of something, an idea, be it a sort of a macro view or a, an individual stock or sector preference or something, the genesis of it starts off with just me randomly stumbling upon something, kind of thinking about it, and then kind of three days later after I've kind of processed it and thought about it a bit more, done a bit more background research, you know, then I can start thinking about, well, how in the markets can I either access this opportunity or, or whatever? So, indeed, and I think from an investment perspective, you can't be a closed book. Um, of course, every time you open up and say something, you risk being perceived as a fool, getting it wrong, saying something ludicrous and everything else. But, you know, I, I take that. And, you know, I've had enough pushbacks and people don't agree and whatever. That, that's fine. That's part of playing the game. But if it, the, the, the benefits of actually being part of an open architecture thing where you actually get people debating with you or thinking about it or you jumping off other people's thoughts into something new thought for yourself, that 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 benefit more than outweighs the negative. So um and, and that 
that's that sort of live conversation I almost have with myself on Twitter and, and related is is an important part of that. So um, as always, um, that's the magic of Twitter. Yeah. Not that I own Twitter stock. You know, I should just state I don't own Twitter stock. So maybe, you know, back to back to the comment of five minutes ago, maybe that's the ultimate way to to, to buy in. But I just, just can't make it work, to be honest. I love the product. Mm. Just can't make the stock work, you know, even trying to work out the value of, of this wonderful flow of information. But, you know, maybe one day. I think if you can be um, entertained and educated at the same time, that's a fantastic thing. And I, 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 to that, I turn to Tim's weekly. I don't know if you read his weekly, but it's free and it's out there. And, and Tim would never say this, so I have to say it for him. It's, it's just, I, I don't know why everybody in the world hasn't subscribed to it because it is entertaining and it's educational. And what better combination can you get? And it, obviously I'm going to be Signing up to your Twitter handle, of, of of course, this sounds exactly the same. Well, yeah, I mean, I I I I'm I'm just a minor pawn in this game. Would be my observation, but you know, it's 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 always interesting to sort of um, see these things and to think about it. And I find, yeah, the more the more like-minded people or people that are interested, as you say, in trying to get better, stronger, fitter. In, in the world of investments, just by thinking and, and debating or just musing about stuff, the better. So um, uh, I'm all for it. And as I say, for the for the individual investor, this is such a fabulous thing. It's such a fabulous opportunity to actually um, get cut into some interesting stuff. And then guess what? You think about it. You think what you would do with that. Don't take it at, from, from anybody as, as, a, as a fait accompli. Just just go with it. Think Think about it yourself. Do some more research and, and make your decisions accordingly. What is your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at financial underscore orbit. I should have done the underscore if I'd have thought about it, but I did because you know I was bonkers five and a half years ago. So at financial underscore orbit is is me. And um, one day I might even break ten thousand followers. You never know. Wow, I think you're, nearly, you're nearly there, Chris. You're nearly there. <sighs> well, it's, you're going to get a couple more, you know, I'm sure, from from this. My 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 daughters want to you know throw me a party or something ridiculous like that at 10,000 and um which you know would be fabulous i was actually quite close but then twitter had this massive bot sort of attack thing and took away and i i lost all my bots so um you know obviously i was very disappointed about that but um i'll, I'll live well i'm sure you'll i'm sure you'll reach there very very soon it's probably one of those things that when you hit this critical level it starts to go exponential so you know well I- I think it's funny, actually. I I actually think um, the opposite. Really? <laughs> in the sense that I do actually think that. In the sense that um, I, I think we've now reached the point where Twitter is so omnipresent, and there's so many people, really good people, in very public offices and everything else. There's only so many people you can follow or or, or, or want to follow or have the bandwidth to be aware of. So um, my, my observation is, I think it's, um, and certainly if I talk to people, I've got a few pals who've been on Twitter for um, much longer, twice the length of, of me. And, you know, they observed that back in the day, um, because there were relatively few people tweeting about finance and related, you could build up you know, 20, 30,000 followers. And I can see a few examples of that. People who actually, you know, are kind of wondering what they ever quite did. And, and they didn't buy their followers, but because they were talking about finance, they were one of the early ones to do so. They kind of got a bit of, you know, you have to follow this person because there weren't many people doing it. But now, you know, there are so many good people out there. And I probably, there's probably hundreds or thousands of really good financial commentators who I'd probably actually learn a lot from or enjoy interacting with or whatever, but I don't know about because you can't follow everything or everybody. So yeah. my feeling is uh, it's 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 actually now, if you start a Twitter handle today, unless you're Warren Buffett or Mohammed Alarian or something like that, it's going to be tough to get, actually build up much of a following. That's an interesting point, but I don't. Th- I think what happens is that the, the as we talked about earlier, the the internet filters so. You start off on YouTube with a load of you know random stuff, and it's 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 nothing. And but then it all sorts, and then it sorts into the YouTubers who've got the most views because that's how we sort things. And I think the the thing with Twitter is you've just got to keep going. And what I meant was it goes exponential. Is once you get over ten thousand, then that's suddenly a big tick to another. You know, the next thousand after ten will probably be quite quick. Yeah, he's hoping it goes parabolic. Absolutely, absolutely, and (laughs) and let's hope it does. Let's hope it does. Let's let's move on to media picks. So, um, Uh, Chris, Chris, are you familiar with our little our little forays into the world of pop culture? 
please. I'll, I'll be delighted to hear them. And participate, we hope. So I'll, I'll yeah, go no, first. No, absolutely. Yeah, no, no. So the, 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 I've got two this week. The, the first is just, just on passant. I'd, I'd like to credit uh, Jeff Norcott, uh, the, possibly the only right-of-center comedian that exists in this country. And on Friday, I went to see his show, Traditionalism, at the Leicester Square Theatre. Just fabulous. Terrifically funny. So if, if that show's still going and you can get tickets, then please go, because it's, it's, it's a breath of fresh air. Comedy has been completely taken over by boring lefties, and he's, he's a counterblast to that. So it's very, very funny. It's Jeff Norcott, Traditionalism, Leicester Square Theatre. Fantastic. The other is a film. The other is a film I saw. Uh, it came out last year, so it's, it's not a new, new film. But Lady Bird with uh, Shorshi Ronan, uh, oh, yeah. just fabulous. Perhaps the best film I've seen this year. Very, very funny. Very, very touching. Coming of age story. Um, just brilliant. Lady Bird with uh, Shorshi Ronan. Oh wow, that's an interesting one. I, I I saw that Tim. I have to say, I thought it was okay. I didn't. I there was a lot of raving about it, and I couldn't see it. So I think that's that's one. Maybe you need to be in the right. Maybe you need to be in the right mood for it. Yeah, but that that's interesting. Maybe I'll I'll have another look at it. So so Chris, you know the you know the drill because you've listened to the podcast before. Uh, it can be. It doesn't have to be a film. It's just any pick you think is either very good or very bad. Goodness gracious! Um, I, I'm trying to think of anything. To be honest, um, I, I, I really or, or, fa- or failing that, Chris. If there's anyone you'd recommend following on Twitter, or, oh, yeah, or, or a book or something. Yeah, well, then uh, I would say here anyway, I'm, I'm going to have to scrabble for my laptop because so much sort of exists tentatively in my head rather than rather than anything else. Should I give you mine while you think? Would that yeah, please, be easy? Please, yeah. let, let me. Let me. Yeah, I'll give yeah. you a moment. Yeah. So my one. My one is the um, the Titanic. It's uh, it's uh, I've read an article about apparently that there was a, a fire raging on the Titanic, and this is evidence that was not uh, was kind of suppressed at the time. But apparently there was there was a coal fire, and two interesting things have come out of this. One is that there was a coal fire on on board the Titanic while it was sailing, so it should never have been sailing in the first place. So apparently coal fires are extremely hard to put out. And by extremely hard, I mean near on impossible. And apparently there's a coal fire that started in Pennsylvania in 1967 underground, and it's still running today. And they think it will continue for 250 years. So that's how hard it is to put out a coal fire. And so the theory is that apparently the um, the, the Titanic... The people who were trying to, uh, who were tasked on board with putting out this fire, were using the coal, were trying to get rid of the coal from the coal storage place where the fire was going on and putting it into the furnace. And so they were making the ship sail at top speed, which it wasn't really supposed to do. So, in other words, it's not, it's not the iceberg's fault. Well, that comes, that comes into it. So the iceberg, as luck would have it, hit right at the point of where this fire was happening. And so therefore the, 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 the fact that it was going so fast, the fact that there was a fire, the fact that the, the, um, if it hits it at slow speed, it probably wouldn't have done the damage. Um, but it was going so fast and it was also weakened from this coal fire. Um, and that's what caused it to, to sink. And so there's a new documentary that's come out on channel four that I haven't had the chance to, to watch yet, but uh, I'm, I'm going to be having a look. It's called the um, Titanic, the new evidence it's on channel four, but it's also on the, on YouTube. So people have put it up on YouTube. So I'm, I'm going to be watching that, but I, I think that in itself is absolutely fascinating. And I, I think we are fascinated by the Titanic because of course they said it was unsinkable, but then we look at the almost random set of circumstances, which caused it to fail right. so that that's that's my one for this week <laughs> the, uh, it was funny I, I actually did watch the channel 4 documentary oh, and brilliant. it is an extremely good one and it is on and i was absolutely amazed as you were i, I had two takes from it the, the, the other bit of it without wishing to spoil it for people that were watching it was the fascinating cover-up by the fact that 
um, the firemen, uh, the, the people that the stokers and people working, you know, with this big coal fire who were well aware of it um, from the time that the ship left Ireland and, and left Southampton and obviously cruised into the Atlantic, um, they were suppressed. Their information was very suppressed and the inquiry really did not listen to them. So kind of interesting how the cover up story um, was, was, was sort of very apparent from the start. And that was all because of um, one of the senior executives of the um, of the uh, Titanic's board um, was on the ship, and basically from the get go tried to. He, I think they knew that there was this problem and tried to suppress the information. Tried to say, look, it was an act of God. This iceberg just got in the way, and whatever else. The other aspect was I I went after I watched the documentary. I, I went to a search engine and I put in um, size of modern ships versus the Titanic, and you know, you do that and it blows your mind just how big some of the current ships out yeah. there are, not just the cruise liners, but obviously the big Maersk tankers and others and uh, other style. Titanic was absolutely massive at the time, but compared to today, um, a bit of a tiddler. Yeah, they're, they're, they're floating islands, they call them. And they're just crazy That's how right. big some of them are. They're just, in- know, it's that- incredible, mind boggling, mind boggling. That, that- that's for another story. I've never never made it onto one. Not sure if I really want to either, but that, that's definitely another story. Um, okay, a couple of things then from me. Whilst we're on TV, the, the thing that I've been really um, fascinated to watch on every Saturday evening, we'll be on for the next couple of, of Saturdays, is a programme on BBC4 called The Sinner. Very, yeah. very interesting yeah. program. My goodness, that that makes you think and everything so else. I, I do enjoy that from an investment point of view, which, you know, because I'm a bit of a sad sack, I do spend most of my time uh, thinking about ex spending time with the family and whatever. And I'm not going to give you my review of um, Nativity Rocks film, which I saw yesterday, much to my chagrin, but okay. that's another story again. We, we can uh, read We can read what we need to into that comment. We that's can read. I, I, I really wouldn't. It would be my <laughs> top, top tip. Um, Thank you. Uh, and, you know, there are better Christmas shows out there and films. Um, is If you want to read one investment article, the one that blew my mind the most in recent days, put into a search engine, the the Chandler brothers, C-H-A-N-D-L-E-R, the Chandler brothers, the greatest investors you've never heard of. Wow, that was an interesting article. And again, the underlying message is you as individuals can make a difference. Absolutely brilliant. And on that note, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to have you on chris and uh i'm definitely going to be a follower so you're going to have at least one more there you go Mo- moving towards ten thousand. wow very without, good. without wishing to, to to ignite any more uh touch paper which way did you vote in uh, the brexit to I, I, I actually I, I actually voted um i actually voted remain um on the basis of i i kind of the, the whole thing sort of bored me hugely so i took the view of status quo um, was was it? And the most important thing is is ultimately how companies get on with it. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter what trade relationship you have. It's all about how you get on with something. But I just thought, just you know, for goodness sake, let's just crack on from this debate and just move on. To be honest, I'm I'm equally as as happy with a with a soft Brexit. What I don't want to see is a cliff edge because I just think that's a mess. And um, but the trouble is, we seem to have dealt, you know dug ourselves into a mess, you know, irrespective of, um, you know, what, what, what people or parliament may yeah, think. Tre- treason May does seem to have sort of, uh, <laughs> basically burnt, burnt, burnt all our bridges. Treason May. Yeah. That's so good, Tim. So thank you so much, Chris. No, thank you. Thank you. It's been a ple- pleasure to talk to you and, um, I've learned a lot and hopefully inspired a few thoughts out there too. Tim, as always, thank you so much. It's been, been fantastic. Pleasure. Happy investing until the next time, and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Bye. 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 This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.